Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14 this morning. Now, if you've been with us since the beginning, we've preached this sermon quite a few times already. Uh, but when I looked at passages that were notoriously taken out of context, one that was on every list was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we're going to do it again. We're going to look at it again. And if this is like the eighth time you've heard it, be assured, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So uh, we're going to read verses 10 through 14 this morning. And, I'll, and you probably forgot everything else that I said, so that's okay. But verses 10 through 14, Philippians chapter 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned to, in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you share in my distress. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Christ, we are thankful again for the promise that you are with us. When we lack, when we are in need, we know that you are near to us. And we're thankful that you are near to us by your spirit, but we're thankful that you're near to us in your people. And we pray, oh God, that we would come before you this day and recognize truly how much we need you, how we need you every hour, how we need you every day, and how we need you even in the Christian walk when we are forgetful of the good things that you give. So we pray, oh God, that we would love you. We pray, oh God, that we would love one another. And we pray, oh God, especially that we would be content. We know that truly is a rare jewel for God's people. May we learn to be content in whether we are abased or whether we abound. We know that this is a spiritual work. This is a spiritual grace. And we pray, O oh God, that you'd cultivate that in your people this day. And as we do so, O oh God, may we remember that it, we look to Christ always. May we always have our eyes fixed upon our Savior. May we always look to him, even in our Christian walk, even in our sanctification, O oh God. May we look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. If there are any here today who do not know you, we pray, O oh God, they would look to Christ in faith to find forgiveness. They pray that they would flee to the fountain and find mercy in him. Thank you for such a God who forgives. And we pray, O oh God, that you'd be honored and glorified now as we come to your word. Give us illumination again from on high by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, again, this text is notoriously taken out of context. It seemed to be used in sport by sports athletes or in sports, uh, you know, different types of sports. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People use it when they're living their life. They're almost living this unstoppable life. Nothing's going to stop me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But it's important to read the context and see what Paul is saying in verse 13, but also in the verses that come before it, especially verses 11 and 12, when he talks about how he learned to be content. And we must also consider the entire book. The book of Philippians is Paul in prison writing to them. And the book of Philippians is all about joy in the midst of suffering. Doesn't mean you're going to live a carefree life doesn't mean you're going to live a pain-free life, but it means you have, we ought to have joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of trial, joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, though we go through difficulties, and we will go through difficulties in this world. And Paul begins to come to the end of his letter in chapter 4. He gives them some final exhortations on how they ought to live, and he comes in verses 10 through 14 to give them an example of one who rejoiced in suffering, namely himself. 
He has said often throughout the book, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now he comes to say, I have rejoiced in the Lord always. Joy in the midst of suffering. And clearly the problems that we see in verses 10 through 14 are the problems of one, difficult circumstances. Trial, struggle, things we endure that we don't wish to endure, difficulty in this world, trials and tribulations. And brethren, life is filled with them. Life is full of them. The Bible tells us this and warns us that this is going to be the norm, tribulation and suffering in this present evil age. But another problem that emerges, even unfortunately amongst God's people, is the problem of discontentment. We become daydreamers. We think that only if this were to happen, only if I had this in my life, life would be so much better. Rather than rejoicing in the Lord always, we're discontent with the place that God has put us at the present time. And certainly Ecclesiastes has taught us and warned us and given us good perspective as we've gone through. But Paul also gives us good perspective as well in the book of Philippians, especially verses 10 through 14. So what he's saying in these verses is he's highlighting where his strength and contentment lie, where his source of hope is, to whom he looks in his time of great difficulty. So a good question to ask ourselves and a good way to examine ourselves as we go through this passage or these, uh, these verses is where does your strength and contentment lie? To whom do we rejoice? To whom do we look to in whatever circumstance we face in this present evil age. So we'll seek to answer this question under three headings this morning. First of all, rejoicing in circumstances, verse 10. Secondly, we'll see content in circumstances, verses 11 and 12. And then lastly, strength in circumstances, verses 13 and 14. So rejoicing in circumstances, content in circumstances, and then uh, strength in circumstances. So let's first look at rejoicing in circumstances in verse 10. And notice what he says. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He's already commanded this in chapter 4, verse 4. As he again comes to that end, he's giving some exhortations to the church. And he says to the church in Philippi, be joyful. Now, perhaps they were fearful that persecution was going to come to them. It hasn't come just yet. But he's writing it to tell them, hey, rejoice in the midst of suffering. Rejoice in the midst of trial. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to be anxious. That doesn't mean we're not going to have sadness. That doesn't mean we're not going to have tears. But we can still rejoice in the Lord always in the midst of those times. And it's kind of a funny thing. And certainly we'll unpack this more as we go through. But he says rejoice in the Lord always. But he also said it in chapter 3, 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And notice where his source of joy already. Rejoice in the Lord. And even in chapter 3, 1, he's saying, I write the same things to you. You want to know why he says that? Because we're forgetful about where our joy lies. We're forgetful about where our hope is. And we must be reminded again and again of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the benefits that we have in him. So after he says in chapter three, rejoice in the Lord always, he unpacks what he once was and now what he is in Christ. In chapter three, seven, what things were gained to me, these I've counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things 
and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He goes on to say in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Theology comforts him. Theology gives him encouragement. Theology reminds him about who he is in the Lord. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord always. And what's interesting is usually in the difficult circumstances, that's where God teaches us how much we need him, right? He teaches us in those times what really matters. Even as we saw in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to have the house of feasting. The reason being in the house of feasting, you typically forget. You forget the sad things. You forget the things that really matter. But in the house of mourning, you stop and think. In the house of mourning, you stop and ponder. In the house of mourning, you stop and consider. And even too, though the, 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 certainly those sorrows can make the heart glad as we consider and look to an everlasting joy in our Lord. But here he's going to give us a specific example about why he rejoices in the Lord. He certainly rejoices theologically, but he also rejoices practically, namely the gift that the church at Philippi has given him. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. They were attendant to him in his circumstances. He certainly has an attitude in his circumstances that he's able to find joy in every situation. But he's also thankful to the Philippians for their tangible gift that they've given to him. You see, he is grateful for all that they have done. You see, the reality is we ought not to, we ought not to be ungrateful. We ought, to be, uh, we ought not to complain about all that we have. We must remember, dear brethren, that everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. The clothing on our backs, the cars that we drive, the, the ability to buy even a 10-cent candy from the, uh, the grocery store. Those are all gifts from the Lord God Most High. We don't deserve any of it. Even at creation, it is a kindness of God to make man, Adam, his vice regent, that he made him a little lower than the angels and gave him to have authority over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. That is a gift to eat the meat, to eat grass, to eat herbs. All those things are a good thing. And how much more, brethren, in redemption, the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places. And it's, oh, it's interesting is even in our Christian walk, what's, you know, I love the Bible, uh, that the Bible is so real because in chapter two, he says to the Philippian church, do all things without complaining and disputing. I wonder why he says that. Because we do a lot of things with grumbling and complaining and disputing. You want to know, you, can, you want to see my grumbling and complaining? Why don't you sit in the back seat while I drive? And everybody cuts me off and someone goes slow in the left lane. And I whine and grumble and complain at those people all the time. You can't just pick it up. Thank you for cutting me off. Thank you for doing that. Clearly the world revolves around you. Well, maybe I think the world revolves around me because that's what grumbling and complaining signifies, doesn't it? The world revolves around me. And if only my life was better, if only things could be greater, if only things would be wonderful, well, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? But notice even in chapter two, therefore, uh, verse 12, before the grumbling and complaining, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, 
but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good. He's talking about sanctification here. He's talking about our Christian walk here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Know that it is God who works in you both to will and to do. Love that Augustine quote. Everything good within me is from God. Everything else is my fault. Everything good within me is from God. Everything else is my fault. Brethren, even in our Christian walk, know what he says. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's not by your might, not by your power, but the strength of the spirit who strengthens us with might in the inner man. And thankfully, God is good to forgive us when we grumble and complain. And thankfully, God helps us to kill the sin of grumbling and complaining. And we must remember, too, with the way Paul speaks, he's in prison. He is the one who is in shackles at this time. And at this time, they didn't have a government-funded rehabilitation facility. The only way that they got money, brethren, is when other brethren get brought them things. The only way they got uh, food, sorry, more to speak, uh, pro- is proper uh, what, uh, what we're referring to is they gave, when they gave him, uh, the only way he got food was from brethren who brought him things. That was the only way. They didn't have taxpayers paying for it. They had to have actual tangible gifts. That's why he says, your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. It's not that they didn't love him. It's not that they didn't care for him, but they, you know, they didn't have e-transfer at this time. They didn't have perhaps a way to get the money to them other than finally by Epaphroditus. In chapter 230, he says, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Epaphroditus brought the money, brought the food, brought the sustenance to Paul on behalf of the church at Philippi. That was the only way that he could have some sort of meal every day. And it was a gift of God through the people. That's why he rejoices. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last your care for me has flourished again. They love him. They care for him. They've helped him in the past, but they've been able to do so because of distance and resources. But now that has been restored. That's the language there in verse 10. Though you certainly did care for me, but you lacked opportunity. And now they provided for him once again. So he rejoices in the Lord and he rejoices in the good gifts from God by the Christian church. And certainly this is a good example of Christian love. The Philippians kindness, Paul's thankfulness, caring for those in need. They see, they see a need, they help him. And there is praising to God most high, giving thanks unto him for all that he has done. So this is rejoicing in circumstances, brethren. We ought to rejoice in circumstances. Let's then look secondly at content in circumstances in verses 11 and 12. Now, verses 11 and 12 are a clarification. There's some tension here. And perhaps you have that tension sometimes in your life as well. He doesn't want to be ungrateful. He's thankful for what they have done. But he also knows that he is meant to be an example for the people about one who can be content. One who can have much and one who can also go without. So he says in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now notice, he learned to be content. 
He learned to be content. He learned to be content. It's because most of the time we're not content. Most of the time we're not happy. Most of the time we're not pleased with the place that God has put us in this world. But what's interesting is we must be content regardless of the outward circumstances that one faces, that one endures. It really is an inward disposition, an inward trust in God. Jeremiah Burroughs says, he has got a great definition of what it is. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, and gracious frame of spirit. Sweet, inward, quiet, and gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise, fatherly disposal of every condition. God's wise, fatherly disposal of every condition. Often we think our life would be better if we did it differently than God did it for us, right? God has put us here. God has placed us there. God has withheld certain things for a certain reason, and we grow discontent. We grow grumbly. We grow whiny. We grow complainy. But, you know, that's why it is something that must be learned, and that's why Jeremiah Burroughs says it's a rare jewel of Christian contentment. It takes us a long time to be content. And even when we think we're content, sooner or later, we grumble at something else that comes our way, right? I learned to be content in whatever state I am in. There's a similar word in 1 Timothy 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What's more important than alleviating our circumstances, brethren, is godliness in those circumstances, right? regardless of how difficult that circumstance may be. It's more important to honor God, to, to engage in his will, his revealed will. Here's how you, you are supposed to live. We don't always know God's um, decorative will. We don't always know the future, who can find out God's work from the beginning to the end. We don't know how today is going to go or how tomorrow is going to go. But we must. there's a certain way in which we ought to live as the, our life unfolds. That's hard, isn't it? When people are mean, when people cut you off as you're driving, when all those things happen, we must trust and honor God. As far as it depends on us, we must be at peace with all men, Romans chapter 12. But again, so often we are daydreamers. So often we think, man, let's see, if only I was in this, if only this happened, if only this occurred, rather than recognizing that this is where God has placed us. This is where God has put us. This is where God has uh, led us. And we ought to trust his fatherly disposal of every condition in which we are in. And he may be protecting us from something we do not see coming. And so often when we grumble and complain and daydream, it really takes our eyes off of Christ, doesn't it? Takes our eyes off the Savior, takes our eyes off of the good things that he has done for us in this world. But we ought to have joy. We ought to be pleased. We ought to thank him for all that he has done. Edie says, and I like what he says here, contentment is not apathy or indifference. He says, contentment, which the apostle universally and uniformly possessed, sprang not from indifference, apathy, or desperation. We're not disembodied spirits. We're not, it's not as though we don't have emotions. It's not as though we cannot cry when a loved one passes. It's not as though we can't mourn for them, but we still must be content that this is what God has set forth for us. He goes on to say, 
It was not a sullen submission to his fate. He's not some mopey Eeyore walking along the road, not the death of hope within him. He felt what want was and keenly felt it. And therefore he gladly accepted of relief and rejoiced in all such manifestation of Christian sympathy. He knew how to be abased. He knew how to be without. That's why it was such a great moment of Thanksgiving when they brought him some food. He's starving and all of a sudden he can eat. He's starving all of a sudden he can eat on some good food and for which he can praise God. Nor was he self-sufficient, Edie goes on to say, in the ordinary or the common sense use of the term. It was no egotistic delusion that upheld him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nor did he ever invoke the storm to show that he could brave it. Some people like to flaunt on Facebook that they're suffering, right? That's kind of egotistical, isn't it? Oh, I'm suffering. I mean, the Pharisees like to do that. I'm fasting. Look at me. I'm suffering for the Lord God most high. Brethren, we can be arrogant in our suffering, can't we? Someone hasn't gone through what I've gone through. Someone hasn't endured the suffering I've endured. That really shouldn't be our response, should it? The sufferings that we endure actually should make us more compassionate. Unfortunately, we're so terrible that it's the opposite. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ who forgives us of all of our sins, even the arrogant sins in the midst of suffering that occur. Again, I'm not trying to belittle anyone's suffering, but we sin a lot sometimes in our own suffering. He goes on to say, but his mind calmly bowed to the will of God in every condition in which he was placed. Calmly bowing to the will of God in every condition in which he was placed. I have learned to be content. And he goes on to explain that in verse 12, the different types of circumstances. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need everywhere in all things. He recognizes the hand of God. Ecclesiastes 7.13, in the day of prosperity rejoice, but consider this, the day of adversity also comes from the hand of God as well. Ecclesiastes has been so comforting with all of this, and maybe he probably did have Ecclesiastes in his mind because most of the, uh, at least a lot of the disciples at the time probably had most of the Hebrew Bible memorized We know Psalm 23, but they probably had most of the Hebrew Bible memorized and put in their brains. And so he probably did have a lot of scriptures to draw upon in his memory. And I'm not saying that it necessarily was there, but I could see it being there in his mind. But he can be abased. He can have nothing. He can be humiliated. He can go without. But notice the balance. He can enjoy prosperity, too. He says, I can abound. I can be content even in abounding. Thank you, Lord, for the abounding that I have. But also thank you, Lord, for the abasement that I receive as well. He has learned this. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. That is, he knows how to go without when it comes to food, but he also knows how to enjoy it because it's a gift from God. Again, Ecclesiastes, you know, food and riches and, you know, pleasure can be vanity, but also in the proper sphere, in the proper place, it is a gift from God. Balance here. Be full and to be hungry. And notice both to abound and suffer need. That is in poverty or riches. He can do it anywhere. Food, 
or nothing or no food, poverty or riches. He knows how to be content. Even poor people are discontent sometimes, right? They can be discontent with the life that they have. We must recognize that, or we ask by God's grace, as the people of God, to be the most thankful and the least grumbly of all the people in this world. Unfortunately, that is not true, but we ought to be content, dear brethren. And brethren, the Apostle Paul did endure much suffering. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 with the list of trials that he endured as an apostle. Many, and many of them very harsh, many of them very difficult, but he learned to be content in whatever state he is in. That's why, brethren, we ought to be content in whatever state we are in. That's hard. It takes time. It takes God's mercy. It takes the work of the Spirit. And it takes a lot of prayer and Bible reading. Again, brethren, what's interesting, I remember, I probably said this before, and I remember hearing it when I was taking a class at seminary. One of the pastors in the class said, you know, we're very good theoretical Calvinists. God is sovereign. Everything's in control. Then we seem to run around like a chicken with our head cut off when something we don't like comes our way. Is God not sovereign? Is God not in control? Is God not the one who works all things from beginning to end and we cannot find out his work? And we must submit to him and understand that it is fatherly uh, disposal of everything in this world. And what's interesting, while tears stream down our face, we can still find hope in God, right? While tears still stream down our face, we can still find hope in God. And the psalmists are excellent for this, aren't they? Psalm 42. Oh, my soul, why are you cast down? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, right? Sometimes we have to actually talk to ourselves. And even in that psalm, he goes on to say, Lord, my soul is cast down within me. What does he say? Therefore, I will remember you. Therefore, I will remember you. I will remember the hill, uh, the, 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 Mount, uh, the land uh, of the Jordan. I will remember Mount Hermon. I will remember the land Mizar. I will remember your promised land. I will remember you. Hope in the midst of suffering. Hope in the midst of great crying out to God. Hope in his fatherly disposal of all things. May God give us that inward, sweet, quiet frame of spirit and whatever thing comes to pass in our life. And may he forgive us when we complain about it. And thankfully, there's forgiveness in him. So brethren, we ought to be content in circumstances. Then, look, then looks, that let's look finally at verses 13 and 14, strength in circumstances. And here's that passage. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hopefully you see the context of what he means here. This text is so often abused, ripped out of context. It's at high school, graduation. They're like, I can do all things. I'm going to have a wonderful life. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Yay. But it's not how life is. Unfortunately, it's become a self-help passage for Christians in this modern era, a self-esteem passage for Christians in this modern era. We ought to be honest with ourselves about how influential culture is really on us. And even with a passage like this, we like to think if we think of a magical thought, any happy little thought, we're going to fly, right? We can fly, we can fly, we can fly, right? And what's interesting is Disney, 
took that song and took that book and made it happier than it actually is. I'm reading the actual one right now. It's kind of depressing, but maybe in a sort of good way, but that's okay. But it's really not, we always like to make things peppy and happy and make everything wonderful. But is that really God's will for our life, dear brethren, that everything's going to be peppy and happy and wonderful all the time? Again, I think sometimes we are influenced by this more than we like to admit. Even with our prayers, I think sometimes you don't always realize that we pray for the removal of circumstances, don't we? Now, it's not wrong to pray for that. Second Thessalonians chapter three, he says, I pray that uh, that 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 uh, God, pray for us that God would deliver us from unreasonable and wicked men. It's not wrong to pray that. But brethren, you know what God's will for our life is? Sanctification, growth in Christ, growth in truth. And sometimes it's not wrong to pray for healing of loved ones that are sick. But we should also pray equally that they be sanctified. Pray equally that they would trust. Pray equally that we would trust in whatever thing comes our way. So often we ask God to remove us from those times. We ought to pray to him and ask that he would sanctify us in the midst of those difficulties. Because the passage clearly says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the context indicates you can be abased through Christ who strengthens you. You can suffer lack through Christ who strengthens you. You can endure trials through Christ who strengthens you. There's an excellent quote from Dale Ralph Davis on Psalm 23, talking about the valley of the shadow of death. He says, it's not that we realize in the valley that Christ is near to us, but we realize in the valley how near he has always been. Christ is always with us. Christ is always near to us. And it's usually in the great deep, dark moments of our life that we experientially, we emotionally see him more. And that's why sometimes the darkest times of our life are for our greatest benefit. I'm not saying we're masochists and we go looking for that very thing, but we must recognize it is from God's fatherly disposal of all things that happen in this world. We sometimes like to ask, where is Christ? But brethren, he is with us always. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is a blessed text when we see it in its context. A blessed text to recognize whatever trial and suffering you will endure, Christ will be with you. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Because Christ is ever present. Notice, Christ will strengthen you. But he's at the right hand of God the Father. Well, brethren, A, he's God, so he's everywhere present. And B, he's sent forth his spirit. And so we really are united to the human nature of Christ by the power of the spirit, are we not? And it's talking about union with Christ. Christ is promised to be with his church to the end of the age. Christ is promised to never leave us and forsake us to the end of the age. Christ really is with us. McLaren says union with Christ heightens and purifies all earthly relations. Nobody should be so tender. Uh, uh, nobody should be so tender and so sweet in these as a Christian. His face should be like the sunshine blazing out over the meadows, making them greener. 
That is, if we have Christ in our life, should we not be radiant and reflecting his glory? Should we not be shining bright in the midst of whatever trial we endure to suffer in a godly way? Brethren, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, and thankfully he will strengthen us and guide us till the end. We can do such things. And then verse 14. There are many ways in which Christ tangibly works for us. And again, it is the work of the Philippian church here. Nevertheless, verse 14, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Paul commends them here, that they recognize that he is in chains, that he is one who is still in the body, that he is one who is still part of the body of Christ. Again, we're not disembodied spirits. And those who are in chains around the world, those who are tortured for the faith around the world, endure agony and pain in the body. And we as God's people must recognize those who are in the body and pray for them, shall we not? And certainly one way that the Philippian church was tangible to Paul and his chains was, here's some food. Eat, enjoy, and be thankful for what God has done for him. That's one way they demonstrate Christ to them. One way Christ shows his love for them, for him, by way of this financial contribution. Nevertheless, you've done well that you share in my distress. Now, brethren, all of this really is meant to teach us in whatever place we are in in life, set your eyes upon Christ. What is your hope in life and death? Christ alone. I am not my own. I am his. I am bought with a price, and this life shall pass, this life shall end, and I shall be with him forever. We can endure till the end through Christ who strengthens us always. And we ought to praise God for those sorrowful circumstances that drive us closer to the Savior. For that is where we learn more about how much we need him always. So praise be to God for sanctification. Praise be to God for suffering Praise be to God for those things that what man means for evil, God does mean for good and for our sanctification. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, this promise of Christ with you is not for you unless you believe. If you look to Christ, if you believe upon him, if you confess your sins, believe that he lived, died, and rose again, you shall find mercy and forgiveness in this one who is fully God and fully man. Your sins make you guilty before God most high. Your sins uh, deserve everlasting punishment, but this one who is Christ bore the punishment upon himself, assumed human flesh in the form of a servant, as Paul says in Philippians 2, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself, and he has been glorified and exalted that those who are undeserving may be exalted with him. And the only way to do that is by faith in Christ. Believe upon him and you shall be saved and find mercy, be united to him and have the promise. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God, please forgive us for the many times we take your word out of context. Please forgive us for the many times, O God, that we do not fully grasp and understand what you are saying. But thank you, O God, that you have men who've gone before us. Thank you, O God, that you preserved 
your truth throughout the past 2,000 years. And we're thankful, O oh God, that we can read it and be illumined by it to see what is going on here. And so we pray, O oh God, that we would be content in everything that comes our way, that we would learn it, and that we would recognize we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can be abased and we can abound. We can go without and we can have plenty. And so we pray, O oh God, that we would not grumble or complain, that we would not whine, that we would be grateful for all that you've done for us. And we pray, O oh God, that we would rejoice in you, that we'd be content in circumstances, and that we would recognize where all the source comes from, and it comes from you. So we ask, O oh God, that you'd be with your people as we go into the world. Help us to put our faith and trust in you always. Deliver us and keep us, we pray. And also, God, we pray that if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save their souls and give them life everlasting. So be with us now by your spirit. Aid and strengthen us, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.